0: Well, we uh, are generally, I think, repulsed when we hear stories of injustice, uh, where innocent people are maybe victimized, or the criminal doesn't get caught, or does get caught, but then gets out on cashless bail, which is happening in certain cities in our country these days. On the other hand, we, we kind of love it, right, when, when uh, the stories we hear are the bad guy getting caught and justice being served. I heard a story about a guy in Charlotte, North Carolina who bought a box of very rare and expensive cigars. Uh, He took out an insurance policy on these cigars and insured them, among other things, against fire. (laughs) Within one month, having smoked all the cigars, and before he'd even made a premium payment on his insurance, he filed a claim with the company stating that the cigars were lost in a series of small fires. (laughs) The insurance company common sense, refused to pay, citing the obvious reason that the man had consumed the cigars in the typical fashion. In response, the man sued and won. In delivering the ruling, the judge said, I agree with the insurance company that this is a frivolous lawsuit. But the judge stated, nevertheless, the man did hold the policy for the insurance company, and it had warranted these cigars were insurable and also insured them against fire without defining exactly what was to be considered an unacceptable fire. As a result, he ruled that the company was obligated to pay the claim. Rather than endure a lengthy and probably costly appeal process, the insurance company accepted the ruling and paid the man $15,000 for his loss of cigars in the fires. Now, we read that, or we hear that, and we go, whoa, wait just a doggone minute here. This is crazy. This makes no sense. doesn't sound right, doesn't sound fair, doesn't sound just, and I'm with you. So just hold on for the rest of the story. After the man, and they waited until he cashed the check, the insurance company then had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. With his own insurance claim, And the testimony from the previous case used against him, the man was convicted of intentionally burning his insured property. He was sentenced to 24 months in jail and a $24,000 fine. Yeah, those are the stories we love, right? Well, right up there, I think, with one of the most heinous crimes in history was selling out Jesus, the Son of God, for about 25 bucks, 30 pieces of silver. And on this night at the Passover dinner, Jesus declares to his disciples that one of them is going to betray him. And no one in the room had any idea who it was or that it was going to be Judas Iscariot. Now, we don't think so today, but Judas is actually a kind of a wonderful name. Judas comes from the word Judah, which means praise. It's a great name to have. I figure his parents probably thought, let's name him Judas. He'll grow up to praise the Lord I don't think that really happened, but that was her, I'm sure that was her intention. As time passed, of course, Judas's name appears in dictionaries as a synonym for traitor or betrayer, someone who's betraying a friend or a comrade. So we're in John, 18, or John 13, 18 to 30, and here's the three things I want to kind of pull out of this passage for us. One is the prediction that Jesus makes of this betrayal that's going to happen. And Jesus selects an Old Testament passage in Psalms to kind of demonstrate that this is a prediction that's, that's now being fulfilled, what is, is basically what Judas is about to do. He predicts, basically, that he knew it all along. Number two, I want you to notice the paradox of betrayal, that even as horrible as it is, it's still going to be used for God's purpose, and for God's purpose for Jesus and for the disciples, all those who didn't betray him. Going to be used for something good out of the outcome. Number three, I want you to, to focus a little bit on the proximity of the betrayer and where he was at the table. Let's we'll see if we can glean some information from that. So let's begin in verse 18, the prediction of betrayal. Jesus says, I'm not speaking to, of all of you, not everybody's going to betray, but I, I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, what should interest us at first, is that Jesus was not surprised at all that Judas was about to betray him. In fact, Jesus pulls out a scripture that shows that this actually was predicted all the way back in the Old Testament, predicted by something that happened in the Old Testament when Jesus says, He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. He's quoting Psalm 41. So let me tell you a little bit of backstory about Psalm 41. Psalms 38, 39, 40, and 41 all written by King David. And in those Psalms, he is, he is dealing with and seeking wisdom from God about what to do in response to a rebellion by his son Absalom. And Psalm 41 zeroes in on a specific man that Abraham, I mean that, that Abraham, that David loved, a man that was David's friend, uh, a trusted counselor, a really good counselor, a guy who sat at his table and ate with David. And this uh, guy, it turns out, was named Ahithophel. And Ahithophel, as it turns out, was also the grandfather of Bathsheba. You may have heard of her. Unknown to David, Ahithophel apparently harbored some deep-seated hatred for David because of his rape of Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah. Now, David had repented of those sins, but it didn't elaborate, it, did, it, it didn't excuse the rape, nor did it take care of the murder, right? God forgave him, but the consequences of those acts led to all kinds of nightmares and violence within David's family. One son raping another daughter, Tamar, who just happened to be Absalom's sister. David did nothing in response to that. After all, he did the same thing to Bathsheba. He does not occupy the high moral ground in this situation. <laughs> He did the same thing to her. So Absalom spends two years plotting (coughs) before he kills the rapist, his brother, and flees. Three years later, David is persuaded to invite Absalom back to Jerusalem. Absalom comes back, but David refuses to meet with him. Two more years pass. Absalom's decided enough's enough. He secretly conspires to overthrow David, and clandestinely builds an army loyal to himself. When he mounts his attack, Ahithophel, that's when Ahithophel makes his move. He he betrays David. He joins forces with Absalom. Long story short, Ahithophel was a traitor. And later, when it was obvious that David was going to actually win out, Ahithophel left Absalom's side, went home, got his affairs in order, and hung himself, just like Judas did after betraying Jesus. Now, why is all this important? Why does John, the Gospel writer, even bring this up? Well, here's why. Jesus knew everything that was going on around him all the time. One of the things we discover in the Gospel of John is that he wants us to know that Jesus was in total control. Nothing surprised him. He wasn't some helpless victim of an unanticipated crime. He knew everything in advance. In this case, Jesus shows us that the betrayal of Ahithophel, mentioned in Psalm 41, was actually a prophecy about what Judas would do in betraying Jesus. Jesus got that and knew that. He just knew things. Think back a few chapters to John chapter 5. Jesus is talking to a woman at the well in Samaria. And she was giving him these cute little answers and questions and trying to sound really smart and sassy. And then finally, Jesus just kind of cuts to the chase and says, hey, uh, go call your husband. She goes, I don't have a husband. And then Jesus kind of goes for the jugular. You're right. You told the truth. You've had five husbands in your lifetime, and now you're living with some guy who's not your husband. Boy, does she wake up quick. (laughs) Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Uh, What gave it away? Yeah, things that he knew. And she ends up believing in Jesus as her Lord and Savior, along with much of her city. Luke chapter 6, Jesus is in a synagogue. People are watching him. Leaders are watching him. Because in that synagogue is a guy with a withered hand. And they're going to wait to see if this guy, Jesus, is going to heal that dude on the Sabbath. And the Bible says, and listen to this, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Which is it better to do on the Sabbath day? Heal life or destroy it? To do good or to do evil? Now, what's this crowd thinking right about now? Yeah, they're thinking, it's like he's reading our minds. So getting back to our passage, Jesus knows Judas is going to betray him. So here's the question for you. Can you you imagine living like that? Knowing in advance every bad thing that's going to happen to you in your whole life? to everyone else around you? Knowing that this child is going to get in that horrible traffic accident, knowing that that parent's going to come down with a dread disease, knowing that Peter's going to deny you, knowing that Thomas is going to doubt you, knowing that Judas is going to betray you. Can you imagine living that way? Knowing exactly what they will do to shred your body to ribbons even before they hang you on a cross. Yeah, Jesus knew it all. And here's what I think I need you to see. Just because Jesus knew what was coming didn't actually soften the blow. I mean, look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. I I mean, sometimes I think we so emphasize the deity of Christ, and it's hard to imagine that we could actually overemphasize the deity of Christ. Uh, But sometimes I think we do that to the extent that we sort of lose the humanity of Christ. Well, you know, he's God in a human body. He He doesn't experience the things like we do in humans. But so he knew everything was happening, and somehow we think he's detached from the, from the feelings and, and all that bad stuff that's going to happen. He uh, wasn't really bothered by some of those things. It's not true. He lived with that awareness, but he was deeply troubled and agitated. As the writer of Hebrews put it this way, he was one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When I read that as part of this passage, uh, looking at this passage, I don't think that this is referring necessarily to Jesus' temptation by Satan. I mean, unless, unless some of you have had Satan come to you and say, if you just bow down to me, I'll give you the world. Is that, anybody? No? I didn't think so. Th- th- I think those are separate. That's a separate temptation. But I do think there's this. He, he has, he's pained by betrayal. He's pained by unbelief. He's pained by all the things that people are going through in life that he's wanting them to get fixed because of his belief in them. So I think he does deal with stuff. I mean, he could have jealousy. He could could be angry. He could be bitter. He could be envious. None of those things happen. He's dealing with all that stuff. tempted just like you and me. So he knew stuff. I also want you to notice what Jesus did. Look at one word. In verse 18, I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. we word chosen, that's kind of a word that deals with sovereign election. He knew everybody in that room, in that group. Uh, he knew that everybody who believed, and he knew that, Jesus, that Judas was one of the ones that didn't. So I don't want to get too sidetracked on the whole sovereign election thing, but I just want, you, I want to take you back to Luke for a second. Because it says he's chosen these guys as his disciples. In Luke chapter 6, here's what it says. <clears throat> In those days, he, Jesus, went up to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Question. If Jesus knew what Judas was going to do to him, why did he choose him as a disciple to begin with? After spending the entire night in prayer to his father. Well, two reasons I can think of. One, what's stated in the text. It fulfills scripture. Jesus lived with a total awareness of what was going on. And he knew this was going to fulfill scripture. This is going to be the mechanism, this betrayer, this betrayal by which Jesus would go to the cross to pay for the sins of the world. But on a more human level, I think there's something else going on. Because to love anyone is to make yourself vulnerable, right? To love anyone at all is to take risks, even if it means getting hurt. I had someone, time, uh, someone asked me one time, um, well, Dwayne, I, re- I really want to love this person, but how, how can I know that if I make a commitment to this person, That I won't get hurt? How can I be certain I will not be hurt? My answer brilliant. Good luck with that. (laughs) If you're gonna commit yourself to someone in a relationship, to any other person, like a marriage or whatever, there is going to be some pain along the path. That's why people say vows to each other. You don't say, well, for better or best, (laughs) for richer or richest. You know, when we all live happily ever after behind our white picket fence. Now, someone might be able to love an ideal, perfect person. Here's the problem. They don't exist. The challenge is to love the person right in front of you. And in giving love to a real person right in front of you, there's going to be some vulnerability and pain that you will incur. I suppose Jesus could have said halfway through his three and a half years with Judas, you're fired. He could have done that. But the truth is, you're going to be betrayed by somebody. Somebody's going to take advantage of you. Here's the question. What do you do then? Answer, you do what Jesus did. Choose to love them anyway. Choose to love them anyway. I'm choosing Judas. I know he's going to betray me. It's going to fulfill scripture. Nobody else knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus. What does that tell you? that the way Jesus treated Judas was exactly like he treated all the other disciples who actually had come to believe in him. He was publicly showing, overtly showing love to Judas so that no one in that close-knit group ever caught on. Pretty amazing, pretty amazing. It wasn't like Jesus was being duplicitous. He just actually decided, I am going to love this guy all the way through to the end. And we're going to see something of that when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, when the betrayal actually takes place. So stay tuned for that. Let me just share a true story about a couple. This guy was a Christian. He gets married to a woman who wasn't. What she was was an alcoholic. Turns out the wife had an affair with her husband's best friend. He didn't find out about it for about a decade. And his best friend was still his best friend. When he found out, you can guess his reaction, right? Angry, bitter. He felt betrayed by his wife, by his best friend. He thought, my family has fallen apart because of her. Kids want nothing to do with her. Everything I cared about is broken because of this horrible situation. But then I want you to listen to this husband and how he dealt with meeting his best friend for the first time since he learned about this affair that happened a few years ago. He says this, In route to see my best friend, I suddenly remembered the words, Father, forgive our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And something happened to me. With a sob in my soul, I reached out my hand and grabbed his. And for the first time in my life, I knew what it was to forgive. I felt a tremendous sense of release as the unbearable weight of bitterness was lifted from me. This freedom enabled me to renew my love for my wife And to overcome the barriers that had existed and arisen between us, I told her, I forgive you and I will accept you just as I did when I pledged to love and cherish you until death at our wedding. It was then, he says, that the healing process really began. Hope you all get it. This guy had to make a choice that he didn't feel like making, but he made the choice. And then the miracle he didn't expect happened. And it began a healing process in his life that impacted everyone around him, himself, his kids, his wife, his best friend. So maybe we can begin to grasp how Jesus, knowing everything about Judas, knowing that what he's going to do has been predicted, even in the Old Testament, he chooses to love him anyway. That's number one, the prediction of betrayal. The paradox of betrayal is this. Look at verse 19. Jesus talking to his disciples I'm telling you this now before it takes place. That when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly truly I say to you whoever receives me receives the one I no, no, whoever receives the one I send receives me and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now these are pretty amazing words. Some tremendous lessons in them. Three benefits that Jesus kind of mentions for revealing this information in advance to the disciples. Number 1, Revelation is going to produce a greater trust in Jesus as their God and Savior and Lord. Notice he says, when it comes to pass, you may believe that I am he. He doesn't say, I'm going to tell you who the betrayer is, so that when you find out, you can take him outside and beat the living daylights out of him. But Peter would have loved that, right? Now, I'm going to tell you in advance, so that when you understand and see this thing come to pass before your very eyes, You're going to know that all the claims I've ever made about myself in these years that I've been with you, you're going to know they're true. Basically, this is exactly what God does in the Old Testament. God, in the Old Testament, it's interesting. If you look at the Old Testament, what you see God doing is he takes on all the false gods and all the false goddesses that the people of Israel tend to want to go to in the neighboring nations. And so he goes to them and says, hey, can you guys predict the future? Because I can, and people can know that I'm real because of my ability to kind of know the future before it happens. So listen to Isaiah chapter 41, as God is mocking these false gods. He says, set forth your case, make your case, bring your proofs, let them bring them, tell us us what is to happen, tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcomes, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter, that we may know that you are God's. Do good. Do harm. Do do something, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. In other words, God says, put your money, put your prophecy where your mouth is. If you think your God is something and we're to believe in that God, then that God had better be able to tell us the future because that's what God says he can do. And by the way, that's the purpose of prophecy, really. It's not to satisfy curious minds so they can draw you know, charts or whatever. It's, so, it's intended to drive us to trust our God even more. So that will produce greater trust in the Savior, will produce greater trust in Scripture. Jesus quotes Psalm 41. He says, look, this has been predicted long before it happened. This happened to David with Athitophel. But just like Ahithophel betrayed David, so Judas is going to betray me. Now, this is why I think what happened to the disciples. After all the smoke cleared, after Jesus' death, after his burial, after his ascension into heaven, after all of that emotional smoke had cleared, all that confusion, you could tell this. You could tell this. They went right back to the Scriptures, and they started studying them. What else has God written about? What else can we expect to see fulfilled? What else did Jesus say? What's coming? As you start listening to their sermons in the book of Acts, reading their letters in the New Testament, we see the product of Jesus' promise here to these guys. You don't get it now, but you will later. They start realizing that so much of what was spoken of was spoken of in advance, and their love for Scripture just went sky high. That's one of the side benefits. Fulfilled Scripture, so it kind of transforms the way we see Scripture. It showcases its reliability. I mean, I think it's Pretty safe to say that pretty much everybody in this room right now realizes we're in kind of pretty unstable times, right? If you've seen the news broadcast in recent months, you know there's been economic downturn in our country, but also around the world. This is weird. I, found, I saw this. this is weird. How weird is this? People are literally dying of thirst in areas in Brazil that used to be home to rainforests with massive amounts of annual rainfall. Does that make any sense? There seems to be political, cultural, moral freefall happening all over the world as God is rejected. His truth is rejected because the world has in into denying that there is anything that's called absolute truth. Truth is doing what you want to do and then doing whatever you want to do to negate the consequences for whatever you do. What you do in unstable times like these as a Christian, what enables you and me to marshal through such times with confidence and maybe even a smile, it's this book, it's his scriptures. it's the words of God. It drives us back to them, drives us back to the Word of God, and we say, "Hey, all this stuff going on right now." God told us it would happen, and we're seeing a fulfillment of it all around us, and we get confused. But we also get some counsel. Fear not, for I am with you always, even until the end of the age. He knows, and he's here, and he's still in charge. So there's good to come. Come even through the mess, just like good would come through Judas' betrayal of Christ. One of my favorite stories is about John Newton. John Newton, remember him? He was raised in a Christian home. His parents died when he was six. But in those six years, they just basically, you know, taught him all kinds of scriptures. At age six, he has to go live with a relative. He doesn't get along with the relative, has a hard teenage life. He decides to join the British Navy as a teen, He's in the British Navy. Things don't go well there either. He goes AWOL, ends up leaving the British Navy, and becomes a slave trader. I'm not sure it's a step up, but that's what he, he did. He's trafficking in human slave trade, making lots of money. Long story short, after working a lot, he's coming home on, you know, to England on a boat, and the storm hits, and he thinks he's going to die. And so all of those scriptures all of a sudden come back to him as he's anticipating his death. And he's... Uh, understood finally for the first time what they all meant. So he asked God to save his life. God mag- magically does. And when he gets home, he gives his life to Christ. He uh, also writes a f- one of our favorite songs, Amazing Grace. You know, how sweet the sound, saved a wretch like me. What his parents planted in that kid blossom later. Greater trust in Scripture, greater trust in the Savior. Okay, the second thing, that, uh, or the third thing that Jesus is doing with this statement he makes is it's going to give them greater trust in their service. Uh, I I kind of need to explain this a little bit because it didn't make any sense to me when I first was digging into this. So let's look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Okay, so studying up on this passage, came across that verse, and I'll tell you what I thought. What in the world is this doing here? (laughs) I mean, it didn't seem to fit here. It seemed like it was some random thing disconnected from what Jesus was getting at. I didn't see how it linked to everything that had been said before. I mean, Jesus had just predicted somebody's going to betray him. And then he says, whoever receives me receives the one. I mean, what a what? It finally hit me. When I imagined I was sitting there as one of the disciples. I mean, where would my head have been right about now? I mean, Jesus is announcing his death. You know, that didn't set well with the disciples. He's also announcing he's going to be betrayed by one of the 12. They didn't see that coming either. Very discouraging word. They're probably thinking, oh, man, there's a traitor in our midst. This whole thing is going to go belly up. It's going to collapse. Maybe there's no future at all. Maybe there's no hope. Maybe this whole kingdom thing is just going to go kaput. Or where does that leave us? And I finally realized that what Jesus is saying to him is this. Oh, no, look, 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 look. This betrayal thing hasn't changed a thing one bit. In fact, I'm going to be sending you out. And whoever receives you, it'll be the same as if they're receiving me and my Father. This isn't over. We're we're just getting started here, guys. You guys are incredibly important to what my Father and I are up to in the world and up to with you. So, in other words, this betrayal by one person isn't going to jeopardize or destroy anything that God is up to or what your role in it is going to be. I called you to accomplish things this betrayal was predicted. It doesn't come as a shock. God is still in control, so don't you worry about a thing. You will still be going out on a mission. You will still find people that need to hear the gospel. You will tell them the gospel. That many will believe in the gospel and come to faith in me. God's at work, and he will not be deterred. He's already seen the future, and it's amazing. So fret not. Even the betrayal will work to accomplish God's will God, and God's purpose for you. Okay, let me just finish up with this, the proximity of the betrayer. We've seen the prediction of the betrayal, the paradox, but I want to close with this, the proximity. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, if you go back to Matthew's gospel, when they heard that, they all started asking, is it me, is it me, is it me? (laughs) Or is it I, is it I, is it I? I even, Even Judas probably asked, is it I? Back to John's gospel. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, that's probably John. He never calls himself by name in the book. But uh, he's not saying Jesus did not love all the other disciples. He's just saying, hey, I know he loves me. <laughs> he was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So there's Jesus in the middle of the triclinium, U-shaped table. But to his right is Judas. I mean, is John. Okay. And then it says, Simon Peter motioned to John to ask Jesus of whom he spoke. And so John asks him. Jesus says, I'm going to give this morsel of bread once I've dipped it. So he dipped the morsel, gave it to Judas. And after he'd taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. So he just said, what are you going to do? Do quickly. But no one at the table knew why he said this to him. There was no one suspected it was Judas. Some thought, well, he's got the money bags. Jesus is telling him to go buy something for the feast or maybe give something to the poor. He received the morsel. Immediately he went out and it was night. Now understand this. Remember what we talked about before. Everybody sits around this U-shaped table called the triclinium. Jesus, the host, would have been the ones who would have chosen who would sit on his right and his left, right? And he was, a, he was, the, and he was the, they would be put in these seats of honor. We know that Jew, Jew, John is on his right. And remember, James and John, her mother, the mother approached Jesus and said, hey, can you put John and my, his brother right and left hand when you come to the kingdom? They might not get that wish, but it looks like John is sitting to his right. And so John is leaning on his left, because he sits on his left hip, so you have the right hand free to eat. So he's leaning towards Jesus. And so that's why when Peter said, hey, ask him who, he's right there in in Jesus' ear. Now, apparently, next to John might be Peter, because Peter's the one asking John to find out who Jesus is talking about. It's a good thing everybody was befuddled. Because I think if Peter had known exactly who was going to betray Jesus, he probably would have killed him on the spot. Peter was pretty, vol- pretty volatile, right? Uh, he, so, then was, so these two places of honor are actually determined by the host, and Jesus was the host. So here's what I think has happened. Because Jesus hands this morsel, after he dips it, to Judas, to the guy on his left. That would have been the normal way of doing it. So it's funny that the host would have chosen John to sit on his right, and Judas on his left. So John's leaning in towards Judas's chest, and Peter's and, and Jesus is doing the same thing with Judas. I think it was just Judas, Jesus's way of trying to reach Judas all the way to the very end, giving him his love, his mercy, his forgiveness, his place of seat at the at the of honor. Friend, I want you to be with me tonight. I want you to sit next to me. And uh, it would have been a token of honor to have Jesus hand him that morsel. If you were to describe where you are with God right now, what would you say? Are you leaning in? Leaning toward him? Or are you like Judas, leaning away? Notice how this paragraph ends. Having received the morsel, Satan entered him. He departs, and it was night. I don't think John the author just threw that in for funsies. I think he put has a purpose. He wants us to know that the sun had set... It was night. If you're going to go outside, better have a lantern, better have a light with you. We've seen this before with John, right? He uses the metaphor of light and darkness. Back in John 1, he starts off that way. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John's the only gospel writer of the four who points out that Jesus actually said, I am the light of the world. So for John to say it was night, pretty much I think he wants us to know, that darkness had settled in on Judas's soul and that any movement away from Christ is stepping into the darkness. Satan entered him, he left the room, and it was night. Let me close with this story. There was a preacher during the Revolutionary War by the name of Peter Miller. Very effective, very godly man. But he had an enemy. He had several, really. But he had one in particular that really stood out, a guy that just hated what he was preaching, hated his testimony, uh, this unbeliever was eventually arrested and charged with treason and sentenced to hang. When Peter Miller found out about this, he actually walked 60 miles to appeal that man's case before President George Washington. Washington looked over the appeal and said, Sorry, based on the evidence for treason, I cannot release your friend. Peter Miller said, My friend? He's my worst living enemy. Washington looked up, put his pen down, and said, you, you mean to tell me you walked 60 miles to appeal for the release of your enemy, not your friend? The preacher said, "Yep, yeah, that's right. Washington said, Well, that, that puts things in a different light. I'll grant your request, I will release him into your recognizance. Miller then quickly goes to the place where the execution was to take place. He got there just in time. Made Waddy walked up on the scaffolding. Had the noose was set, and when the unbelieving guy saw Peter Miller in the crowd, he yells out, "Oh, Peter Miller comes to take revenge and watch his enemy die," not knowing that in Miller's hand was a signed pardon for his release. So he walks up on the scaffold and hands it to him. This is Jesus played out in the life of a follower of Jesus. Maybe you think Jesus was supposed to mess up your life and ruin everything, ruin all your fun. But in his love, and because of his death for you, he carries around that pardon, complete forgiveness for everything you've ever done, thought, or said in your life. The result of a life of following Jesus should be utter joy. Maybe you want that, maybe you don't. I don't know. I don't know if you're leaning toward him today or not, or you're leaning away from him. But this is guaranteed. If you are leaning away from him, he still loves you. And he seeks to draw you in. And we'll see later. Despite this betrayal, Jesus still considered Judas a friend, even though Judas didn't reciprocate. This is just who our God is. And he is spectacular. Let me pray for us. God, we're going to take communion to celebrate what you did for us to make it possible to have life. So we ask that you would uh, be with us, that you would encourage us, that you would tell us what you want us to know, tell us what you want us to do. Are there people we find it really difficult to love, and we think it's okay because they've done this or this or this or this or that to us. And yet we're encouraged through this example of yours with Judas to love anyway, to make a decision to love to want the best for, to do good for people that maybe don't like us, that have wronged us and hurt us. That's a tall order. And I don't think it comes naturally, but it can come supernaturally with your Spirit in us, encouraging us to do that. So we ask that you would, even as we take communion, maybe we would reflect on people that we just find a hard time loving, find a hard time liking, and change us to be the kind of people that do what Jesus did what Peter Miller did, and we pray it all in his name and for his sake. Amen.